And as you know, over the last several weeks, we've been dealing with this experience that Jesus had while healing the man at Bethesda, a man who had been crippled for 38 years or sick and was not able to get up and get around as a, um, a normal able-bodied person would. And at the healing of this man at Bethesda and upon his following Jesus' instruction and taking his mat and following, going back to his home, and there's this encounter with the Pharisees where they have made an accusation against the man and against Jesus for violating the Sabbath law. And in this monologue that we have recorded by John of Jesus' response to the Pharisees, we see that in this, first and foremost, he has declared that he is equal to God in his person, he's equal to God in his works, in his sovereignty, and in his power, in his judgment, and in his honor. These are words that the Pharisees were not willing to accept. And so as Jesus was making his case, as he was, in a sense, defending himself to the religious leaders, we began in our look last week of the need that the Jews had for an external witness to verify or to validate the claims that Jesus was going to make about himself in the Jewish mindset, most specifically the religious leaders who looked at this as a legal environment to bring a charge against an individual, Jesus acknowledges himself that his testimony is not valid in their eyes, even though it is valid because he is God. They need external witnesses. And so Jesus is very happy to declare to them that he has other witnesses. He does not have to rely on his own testimony, even though they should because of who he is. And so the first witness that we looked at last week was John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist came as the forerunner of Christ, that he was prophesied to appear to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. He was to identify who the Messiah is and to direct people towards him, that he was to call the people to repent in preparation for the Messiah, and that he was going to denounce the hypocrisy that existed within the nation of Israel at the hands of the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. He also declared the witness of his own works, the multitude of miracles that Jesus had performed. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he had been out and about for about a year and a half. And so there were numerous miracles that would attribute to him the equality that he claimed to have with God, those that he made to see, those that he made to walk, those that he raised from the dead. And so these miracles were witness of the claims that Jesus has made about himself. And there were other people who affirmed these miracles. Nicodemus, if you remember, who came to Jesus by night, was a leading member of the Sanhedrin. We saw the crowds who have responded favorably and have attributed this this miraculous power to one that has been sent by God. And even the Pharisees, as we'll look at several weeks down the road, would have to say that no man can do what this man is doing apart from God at work in him. But they rejected the witness of his works, just as they have rejected the witness of John's testimony. And then we also looked briefly at the witness of the Father. The witness of the Father, the testimony that the Father would give about the Messiah, is that he is my one and only Son, audibly at his baptism, at his triumphal entry, and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not everybody could hear those words and not all would understand what was being said. But the way that this witness of the Father is verified in the lives of people is through a personal relationship with God. 
What that means is very simply this, is that if you truly loved God in the Old Testament time, when Jesus the Messiah showed up, you would know that this is the one that God has sent. And you would listen to Him just as you would listen to God Himself. And so Jesus had this indictment against the nation of Israel, and most specifically the Pharisees, is that they have not heard His voice. They have not heard Him speak because they're not in relationship with Him. They have not seen His form, the physical manifestation of the Lord like the Israelites used to in the days of old. They have not seen His hand at work. They have not seen Him working in their midst because they don't have this relationship with Him. And the greatest evidence that they don't have this relationship with God is the indictment Jesus makes is that this word does not abide in them. They are not people of the word. They are people of man-made tradition, of legalism. Even though they are studiers of the word, as we'll look at here in just a moment, they were not truly people who allowed the word of God to abide in them. So we turn our attention today to the final witness that we see in our passage of scripture, and that is the witness of scripture. So look with me in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 47. And this is what we'll focus on this morning. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name... You will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? And so as we look at the witness of the Scripture, this is a somewhat detailed section in this passage of Scripture. And in all likelihood, we could really spend a couple of weeks in this as we would dive into this in excruciating detail. And I don't want to do that this morning. That's a very difficult thing to carry over. But what I hope you will do is you will think about these things that you hear as you read His word, most especially the Old Testament, because the Old Testament was all the scripture that the Jewish people had. The New Testament had not been written yet. And so when Jesus says that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these speak of me, he is referring specifically to the Old Testament. So the most powerful witness that Jesus has in his arsenal of defense against the the accusations of the Pharisees and to validate the claims he's made about himself is none other than the Word of God. Not only because it is truth, but because it is a truth and an authority that the religious leaders would acknowledge. Now, they didn't fulfill it. They didn't live it like they should. But they would theoretically acknowledge that the Word of God is authoritative in their life. So Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now some think that this is an instruction to go and search the Scriptures and find out for yourself that I am who I have claimed to be. But the tense of the verb here does not really indicate that. What Jesus is acknowledging is that they are people who study the Word. They study the Old Testament. They memorized large portions of the Old Testament. 
But Jesus says that you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. Their study of the Scripture was motivated by the false belief that knowing the truth was all they needed in order to be approved or accepted by God. They studied the Word of God diligently because they thought that in the study and in the memorization, they would gain acceptance and approval by God. So one of the fatal flaws that the Pharisees had in their unwillingness to accept the testimony of Jesus and to be unwilling to accept the testimony of Scripture is that they focused on information instead of the message. You know, we can read the Bible. We can learn all the dates and all the names and all the places and all the events and all the kings and the order of events. We can learn all of those things and be completely ignorant of the message that is contained in that passage of Scripture. But that's not where the Jews focused. They didn't focus on the message. They focused on the intellectual study. There was a man by the name of Hillel. He was called Hillel the Elder. He was born in 110 B.C. And he is said to be one of the most important figures in all of Jewish history and was tremendously influential in the beliefs and in the practices that the Pharisees held near and dear to their hearts in the time of Jesus' day. He is associated with the development of the Mishnah and the Talmud, and he was renowned within Judaism as a sage and as a scholar. In fact, there is today a Jewish school that is called Hillel. He has been one of the most influential Jewish scholars from the time of his study. This is what Hillel says. He says that the more study of the law, the more life. And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. It isn't in the understanding of the message. It isn't in the application of its truth. It is in the rote memorization or understanding of what it says. You can be a great student of history and completely miss the message that is in the historical events. So there is this belief within Judaism, that just knowing what the Scriptures say is going to bring to you eternal life. Paul, who is a well-studied Jewish rabbi, thought to be a scholar, studied in the greatest school a rabbi could study in, dealt with this as a part of his New Testament application of the Old Testament message, and he said this in Galatians 3.21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based upon the law. Not upon faith, not upon the finished work of Christ, but only on the written law. And as we looked at in portions of Ephesians, and as you have studied the book of Romans, you will know that Paul says there is no life in the law. Law Excuse me. Sin is exposed by the law, and our, inbil- our inability to fulfill the law brings to us death. So there is no life in the law. There is only life in what the law points to, and that is the fulfillment of the law in the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. So it isn't just knowing what the Bible says. It is knowing who the Bible reveals 
that brings us life. And this is what Jesus says in the second half of verse 39. It is these, these scriptures that testify about me. The Bible, from the start to the end, from the beginning to its completion, reveals Jesus the Messiah. And one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, if you remember in the Gospel of Luke, he talks about, excuse me, in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, he talks about Jesus traveling on the road to Emmaus with a couple of men who were distraught over the crucifixion. And as Jesus encounters them on the road without revealing himself to them, he says this, this is recorded in Luke 24, not the book of Acts, I'm sorry. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus, by his own acknowledgement, would say that all of the scriptures have attributed their message to me, the coming of me, and this is what you will find when you study the New Testament. So there are many, many ways to demonstrate how the Old Testament reveals the person of Jesus, but we're going to look at this in three categories. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses that give some kind of foreshadowing to the person of Jesus. But we're going to look at these in three categories. The first category is the Old Testament prophecies. Now, depending upon who you read, there are literally several hundred prophecies that relate to the person of Jesus Christ. Just to his birth, it was prophesied that he would be born by a virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, and that he would be called out of Egypt by Hosea in chapter 11 verse 1. So we know the story of Jesus' birth and his fleeing to Egypt, and there's, so there's many prophecies that relate to the birth of Jesus. In his ministry, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 8 that he would be a stumbling block to many. In Isaiah chapter 6, that his teaching would fall on deaf ears. In Isaiah chapter 42, that he would reach into the Gentile nations. In Isaiah 53, that he would be despised and rejected. And related to his death and his resurrection, and this is a very consolidated and abbreviated list, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah chapter 11. That he would be beaten on the face and spit upon in Isaiah chapter 50. That nails would pierce his hands and his feet, both in Zechariah 12 and Psalm 22. That he would agonize and thirst and be given gall to drink, as prophesied in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. That despite the normal Roman practice of breaking the legs of those that they crucified, it was prophesied in Psalm 34 that no bone would be broken. And lastly, after his death, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. When you read the Old Testament Scriptures and you think about the fulfillment of the prophecies that are there, it is undoubtedly and unmistakably pointing to Jesus and Jesus alone. So when Jesus says that the Old Testament, the Scriptures reveal me, we have hundreds of examples of where this is true. Now, a second category that we're going to look at, and this is a little more subtle, but overwhelmingly clear is the Old Testament types. Typology, that's why the word type is in parentheses there. So the Old Testament teaches about the coming of the Messiah by means of these types. These types are exhibited in people, events, 
and in institutions that will typify something about Jesus Christ. Depending upon who you read and how you would apply these types, there are at least 20 to 30 people who are a type of Christ in some form or fashion. Listen to this. Adam was a type of Christ and that in his single action had universal impact just as Jesus' single action of his death and resurrection would have universal impact as well. Moses was a type of Christ as our deliverer from bondage. David was a type of Christ as the faithful king. Solomon was a type of Christ and his reign was one of peace and glory. Elijah was a type of Christ and that he called the covenant people to repentance. And there are many, many others who would exhibit some kind of typology that could be foreshadowed into the life and the ministry of Jesus. There are many, many different events in the Old Testament that speak to a type of Christ. The Exodus was a type of God's deliverance from the bondage of slavery and sin. The Passover lamb is a type of forgiveness that is provided for the forgiveness of sin. The wilderness wandering is a type of punishment for disobedience to God's command. The conquest of Jericho was a type of Christ's conquest over Satan. There are many, many, many other types that can be found in a variety of events that are contained within the Old Testament. The institutions also speak of a kind of type The tabernacle typified God as He dwells among men, and as we know, God dwells in Christ, now living within us. God dwelling on the mercy seat is a type of the mercy that God exhibits to His people. The veil of the temple divides sinful man from a holy God. The tabernacle as a whole is a type of a miniature Eden. These parallels include the east facing entrance guarded by cherubim and the mention of a tree of life signified by the lampstand and the tree of knowledge which was signified by the law of God. God dwelling in the tabernacle was a step toward the revelation of this soon to be restored paradise which was to be completed in the new heaven and the new earth. You see, when you and I read the Old Testament, it isn't just a bunch of outdated information. It isn't an antiquated understanding of who God is. It is the revelation of the Son, and it is communicated through prophecies, and through types, and through a myriad of events that point to the coming of the Messiah. The third category that we can look at is the Old Testament ceremonies. Now I'll tell you this. On its face, if you just read through the book of Leviticus, as I have heard many, many people say throughout my life, what a boring book. Why would God ever include the book of Leviticus in the canon of Scripture? I'll tell you why. Because the book of Leviticus speaks of the coming Messiah in very clear and unmistakable ways. The Levitical priests anticipated Christ's ministry of reconciliation for sin. And so much of what they did was a preparation for the eventual sacrifice and forgiveness that would come at the hands of the Messiah. These sacrifices were foreshadowed examples of the saving blood of Christ. The most prominent example in the ceremony included in the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. 
This is in chapter 16. It takes up almost the entire chapter. In the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, only once a year to make atonement, to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. So what the high priest would do is he would put on clean and holy garments, which to signify the Messiah's perfect righteousness to serve as the only priest before God. He then would take two male goats that would be brought to him by the people. These goats also were spotless and without any blemish to show the true sacrifice must also be without any spot or any blemish. So on one of the goats, the high priest would lay his hand signifying the transfer or the imputation of the sin of the people onto that goat and this goat would then be released into the wilderness where he would disappear from the sight of the nation and he would become the scapegoat. That's where that comes from if you didn't know that. So the high priest would symbolically send the sins of the people away from the dwelling place of God. Now the other goat would be killed as a sacrifice and the high priest would take the blood into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle some of that blood on the mercy seat in the presence of God which contained the Ten Commandments and it was there that the sins of the people would be forgiven as they were sprinkled on the mercy seat of God, the place where they thought God Himself actually resided, just as Christ would eventually make a once and for all atonement for our sin. The overwhelming message of the Old Testament is very simply this. It is God's plan of redemption to be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah His one and only Son. And all of the prophecy, and all of the typology, and all of the ceremony, there has never been any that could ever fulfill it, except one. And that is the one that God designed to be the Messiah. The Scriptures point to the Son. And the Scriptures point to this Son who is standing right before them and they are not willing to see it. Their eyes are blinded. Their perspective is twisted. And they can't humble themselves to consider that they could be wrong. And so what Jesus says to them is that the Scriptures testify of Me and eternal life is only in the Son. Verse 40, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Because Jesus is the source of life and because he alone has life in himself, one must come to him in order to have eternal life. My friend, I want to tell you, you can memorize the Bible in its entirety and completely miss the message and you would be destined for hell apart from a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. John 14:6. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is exclusive. Don't ever be shy about that reality. I, I just, my stomach turns when I see those bumper stickers that say coexist. 
And they have all the symbols from all the different world religions. And it's just, can't we all get along? Well, no, we can't because there's a distinction about Jesus and there's only life in Him. You don't come to God in any other way except through the Son. Now, we can tolerate one another. We can love one another. We can help one another. But I'm afraid we're not all going to get to God in all these different expressions of religion. There are people all over our world and all kinds of religions and all kinds of denominations and all kinds of systems who think they know God, but they don't because they don't know the Son. This is exactly what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. This has been the message from the very beginning is that if you don't know the Son, you don't have life. Jesus Christ is the theme of God's revelation. He is the embodiment of all God's person, the exact representation of His likeness, and to know God means that you know His Son. If a man rejects Jesus Christ, you have rejected God the Father. Since the Scriptures testify about Jesus, and because He has been sent by the Father, Jesus has no interest in seeking the approval of these religious leaders or basing the validity of His claims on their acceptance, because that's not what Jesus' ministry is about. As He has said many times over, the Son seeks the Father's glory alone. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. You could come up to Jesus and you could flatter Him with the most flowery speech that one has ever spoken, and he would look right through all of that at the heart of the matter and say exactly what you needed to hear. He never said, oh, shucks, that's awful kind of you. I really appreciate that. Pat me on the back. It's been a little while since I've gotten any of that. That's not what Jesus was about. He did not care if any man ever gave him any praise or any approval because his mission was to do what the Father sent him to do, to say what the Father sent, sent, sent him to say, and to go where the Father sent him to go. Now, this is an important and a stark area of contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees that he is encountering. Jesus isn't seeking their approval, and he isn't upset because they haven't accepted him. He only wants the praise and the approval of the Father, but the Pharisees, on the other hand, were driven by the approval of men. That is what mattered most to them. In verse 42, Jesus says, But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. When Jesus said, I know you, you better believe, He knew you. Not in an intellectual understanding. He knew them. He knew their heart. He knew their value. He knew their priorities. He knew what everything about that individual was like, just as He did when He encountered the woman at the well in Samaria. He knows us omnisciently. Why? Because He's equal to the God in person, in honor, in power, and the like. Jesus isn't concerned with with receiving the praise of men when they don't have the love of God in their heart. That's what that means here. They don't love God. They think they love God, but they don't love God. And when Jesus says, I know you, and you do not have the love of God in yourselves, you can take that to the bank. There doesn't need to be any external validation of what Jesus says. 
William Barclay is a commentator and he says this. He says, they didn't love God. They loved their own ideas about God. Think about that. They didn't love God. They loved their own ideas about God. You know, that's a common problem in our world today, isn't it? Is that there isn't a true love for the true God. There is only a true love for what the world has created God to be. And if we're not careful, we will make God into something that He is not. And we will love the God that we have created as opposed to the God that is. The world has created God into being this divine entity that is there to make them happy and to give them what they want. A God of love with no discipline. A God of blessing with no commandments to follow. A God of grace with no holiness. A God of mercy with no wrath. If they had truly loved God, then they would have accepted Jesus and they would have loved Him just as they claimed to love the Father. Jesus goes on to say in verse 43 and reiterates the whole purpose of His coming. I have come in My Father's name and you do not receive Me. If another comes in His own name, you will receive Him. If Jesus had come from the right rabbinical school, if He had had the right earthly credentials, if He had had the approval and documents from the right scholars, then they would have been willing and probably glad to listen to Him. But because He came on the authority of John the Baptist and on the witness of His works and on the witness of the Father and the Scriptures, they were not willing to accept that because in their minds, Jesus didn't have the right credentials. Jewish historians have noted that over the centuries, there have been as many as 64 false messiahs who have claimed to be the promised one. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, which most everybody has heard of, noted that there was an increase in false messiahs in the years leading up to the Jewish revolt against Rome between 66 and 70 A.D., which ended up in the destruction of the temple. Sixty years after that, there was another messianic pretender that showed up, Simon bar Kokhba. And the leading rabbi of the time, Rabbi Akaba, who was the most esteemed rabbi, believed that this Bar Kokhba to be the Messiah. And so this pretender led a revolt against the Romans with catastrophic results. They were absolutely devastated and they were crushed. You know, there's only one Messiah that ever came and was killed and came back from the dead. Nobody else can claim that. There is no other little G God that can say, I was dead, but now I am alive again. And Jesus, and Jesus alone is the only one that can say, you can kill me physically, but you won't conquer me. You will not conquer sin and death. I will conquer it, and I will raise myself again through the power of the Father. And that is exactly what has taken place. So the Pharisees that Jesus is encountering has ignored the witness of John the Baptist. They've ignored the witness of his works, the witness of Scripture, and they cannot believe in him. And he tells them that the reason why they cannot believe in him is rooted in this, that they seek their own glory. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Rather than seeking 
the praise of the Father, pleasing Him and serving Him, they instead sought the praise of other men. Because this was true about them, they were open to false messiahs who would say what they wanted to hear, those that would elevate their status and be happy to heap all kinds of praise upon them. There are many, many quote-unquote Christian leaders whose values, listen to this, whose values are so closely aligned with their audience that the audience believes them to be wise. You know, the New Testament example of that is that in the last days, people will have their ears tickled by their teachers. They will hear what they want to hear. Hey, don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what isn't true. Tell me what I want to hear. I don't want to be confronted with the truth. I want to be confronted with those things that are consistent with my values. Is it any mistake that the churches that are teaching this false health and wealth and destiny theology are so popular amongst the masses? I have had people tell me, well, you know, they must be doing something right because look at all the people that are attending their church service. Does that mean everything they're saying is true? How do we value the standard of truth by what God's Word says? How do we invalidate what other people believe to be the standard by virtue of what the Word says? And so when the audience shares the same values as this one who is allegedly a man of the Word, he will simply tell them what they want to hear and they will be happy to heap all of the praise and all of the adoration on the individual who is simply telling them what they want to hear. You see, if we're not careful, if we're not willing to take a stand and be rejected by other people, we will not be a people who stand on the truth. We will not be a people who unashamedly speak the truth. But we will wither we will shrink away from and we will find ourselves in a point of compromise in the truth. We have to be careful that we don't make that kind of compromise in order to be approved or to be praised by other people. You know, I remember what Jesus said. He said that he would separate husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. Why? Because he was divisive? Yeah, he was. He was the Messiah. And if you didn't come to him, you would be divided against those who did. So what Jesus tells these individuals is they have hoped in the wrong person. They've not hoped in the one who is revealed through Scripture, but they have simply hoped in one of the ones that has been attributed to the writing of Scripture. Verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Now I want to tell you right there, those are fighting words. For a Pharisee to be told that I don't need to accuse you because Moses is going to be your accuser, it's the same as telling an Israelite that you are not a descendant of Abraham. Well, what do you mean I'm not a descendant of Abraham? Well, a spiritual descendant of Abraham would love the Lord, obey the Lord, follow the Lord. A descendant of Moses would be seeing what Scripture has revealed as opposed 
to rejecting it. Jesus has already said that he did not come to judge the world. Why? Because the world had already been judged. And so here he takes that truth deep into the hearts of these religious leaders by saying that Moses is going to be the one that accuses you. Now remember, Moses is the one who is attributed to the writing of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and every Pharisee and every rabbi and every Jew would herald the Torah because it tells the story of the birth of the nation of Israel and God's miraculous provision for them. So the religious leaders have set their hope on the knowledge of these books and the one they believe to be their teacher and their leader because Moses was the giver of the law. Moses was the giver of the ceremony and the ritual. Moses was the one that instituted the tabernacle. In their minds, all they had to do was know what Moses said and they were going to be fine. These current leaders didn't love God. They sought the praise and adoration of one another and they are incapable of believing in the Jesus that Moses has written about and therefore he would be their accuser. In reality, they haven't truly believed in Moses. This is what he says in verse 46. For if you believed Moses you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, you don't have to be incredibly smart to know that Moses lived a couple of thousand years before Jesus. So how would Moses have written about this guy that's only 32 years old? How would he have done that? Through the prophecy. Through the ritual. Through the ceremony. Often you and I say that we believe something to be true, but we don't always live according to that profession. Isn't that right? We know we ought to eat a balanced diet. We know we ought to move our bodies around and get some exercise. We know that we ought to have healthy relationships within our family, with our friends, by being kind and being gentle and by being forgiving. But do we always live our lives that way? Do we really believe in a God who disciplines disobedience we need to be aware of that in our lives where we say we believe the words of Jesus we believe in the person of Jesus but we don't do what he's told us to do what he's called us to do and in that instance we are like the Pharisees who are not willing to accept him verse 47 if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words the Jews' failure to grasp what Moses and his writings were about is described as not believing what he wrote. All of the scriptures about the Son, including the writings of Moses, and just like in the day of Moses, not everyone who followed him really believed in what he has said. You know, there's an overwhelming witness for the claims that Jesus has made. And you and I can be like the Israelites and choose to set those aside and live for ourselves. Or we can embrace them more fully like we truly believe in them and live out our profession in such a way that we reflect 
the salvation experience that we hold so near and dear to our heart. You and I have the ability to be witnesses, maybe not on the scale of John the Baptist or the miracles that Jesus performed, but you know what? If you ever at a loss for how to prove who Jesus is, you look no further than the Word of God overwhelmingly, consistently declares that he is who he claimed to be. Who is he to you? Would you pray with me? Father, what a great blessing it is to know that your word speaks of your son with great clarity. God, I pray that as we read your word, as we interact with you through the word, that we would not just look for information but we would look for the message. Father, we acknowledge that we are incomplete witnesses of who you are and what you've done. But we thank you, Father, that by your mercy and by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives within us, you give us the ability to still speak the truth and make a difference in the lives of others. Would you help us to have that burden? Would you make us aware of the people you bring into our lives to share the truth with? Would we not be afraid of men? Would we not be so caught up in the praise of men that we would stand unashamedly for you? Father, we thank you that you are a great God of mercy and grace, of love and forgiveness, of patience and kindness, of generous blessing. Help us to live our lives with that in view so that we would please you and bring honor to your name. We're humbled by the reality of what you've done for us through Christ and making atonement for our sin. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. Would you stand with me, please?